Listener Production. A quick note before we begin today that today's episode is discussing domestic violence and some topics that some listeners might find distressing. Please remember that if you are in need of support, that support is available 24-7 at 1-800-RESPECT. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. It can be really difficult to support someone who you know is in a violent relationship and there are a lot of things to consider. Can you legally act to help them? What will happen before you call the authorities? What will happen after? And what will happen when the matter goes to court? To explain all of this, I am joined by Trudy Cameron, who is the Practice Director in Criminal Law at Armstrong Legal and an accredited specialist in criminal law. Trudy joined us for the first season of Lawfully Explained, so welcome back to the show. Thank you and thanks for having me back on what is very important topic and one which is quite topical at this point in time as well. Just wanted to establish, first of all, in the law, what constitutes a violent relationship? Well, there's no specific legislative provision that characterises this is a violent relationship or this is not. Rather, there's a number of criminal offences which create domestic violence offences, whether they're offences involving actual violence, stalking, intimidation or other sorts of offences. And then there's also the legislative provisions surrounding domestic violence orders as well. I want to dive a bit deeper into that because there has been a lot of talk in the media over the past few years about new laws around coercive control. Can behaviour be classified as domestic violence if the behaviour isn't physical? Yes, absolutely. Firstly, before we move on to coercive control, there are a number of offences which are domestic violence offences or which are able to be characterised as domestic violence offences which don't involve assault or physical violence. So an example is an intimidation offence or a stalking offence. We quite commonly see the police charging people with these offences where there's never been an allegation of a hand being laid on anyone. What would be some of the examples of that kind of behaviour that would give rise to that sort of charge being laid? So stalking offences, we've seen recently that sometimes people will buy tracking devices online or install cameras covertly in the house or will follow around a former partner or a current partner. These are some examples that can result in stalking charges. Um, And in terms of intimidation, things like text messages, phone calls, or even the spoken word, which causes the other person an apprehension of fear of a a physical violence offence or other offences. Are there laws around coercive control in New South Wales and and what do they look like? So there's new laws that have been passed, but they're just not in effect as of yet. Um, Last time I checked, they haven't set the date that these laws will come into force. But the creation of a new offence, which we'll refer to as the coercive control offence, it's something which is intended to capture situations where there is conduct by one person, which maybe on its own would not amount to 
a domestic violence offence. Maybe on its own it's not intimidation, maybe on its own it's not stalking. But when you look at the whole of the relationship and their conduct and behaviour in that relationship, it amounts to coercive control. So it's an offence which is going to depend and vary substantially depending on the circumstances of whatever the allegation may be and the circumstances of the relationship. So it may capture things like financial control. It may capture situations where partners are dictating who their partner can speak to or can't speak to. For example, if they take their partner's phone off them, only give them the phone at certain times, insist on seeing who they've been messaging, who they've been calling, and are controlling their partner's behaviour socially, financially, and in other ways as well. If you notice someone that you care about and and you think that they might be in a violent relationship, do you have to do anything about it legally? Is anybody obliged to report allegations of domestic violence if they think that that's what's happening? So there is an offence in New South Wales for concealing a serious indictable offence. We've seen it most publicly recently in the Brian Houston case, which involved an allegation that he concealed his father's sexual abuse of children. In theory, this could apply to someone who was aware that there was domestic violence offences perpetrated by someone on someone else. I have never come across an instance where a well-meaning friend is aware that their friend is being abused or has been assaulted, has not reported that that to police and has been charged. So in theory, that offence could apply. But the New South Wales Police have policies in place in relation to their discretion to prosecute people, whether they be victims or alleged victims of domestic violence or in adjacent positions. So technically there could be an obligation to report it if it is serious enough. So if we're talking about really serious assaults, but in practice, I just really don't see it happening. That being said, a person can absolutely report any crimes that they witness or they're otherwise aware of to the police. What should someone's first steps be in an instance like that where they want to report? It's a really difficult question to answer and there's not necessarily a a legal answer to that question because we all know that domestic violence is not just a legal question, it's a social question. It's a question about how we relate to each other, our friendships. It's really important that friends or people who are aware that someone dear to them or someone close to them is in a relationship which is marred by domestic violence, is there to support their friend. They can encourage their friend to get help from a doctor who can refer them to other services. They can encourage their friend to get in touch with domestic violence services. And they can also encourage their friend to go to the police as well. They can go to the police even if their friend doesn't want to, but on a practical perspective, they may want to consider whether In doing that, when their friend has expressed, I don't want the police involved, do not go to the police, do not tell anyone. If they do then go to the police and tell someone, it may fracture their relationship with their friend. And often people who are experiencing domestic violence, they might be feeling isolated or they might be actively getting isolated by their partner who's offending against them. So the maintenance of that supportive friendship is really, really important And keeping that open door is really, really important. And doing something contrary to the wishes of your friend, whilst very well intended, could end up fracturing that relationship and doing more harm. In media reports about 
high-profile domestic violence cases, there's often a reference to an AVO being in place. So I want to ask you a little bit about AVOs. Mm -hmm. First of all, what are they? So there's two different types. There's apprehended personal violence orders and then there's apprehended domestic violence orders. We'll obviously just talk about the latter. The former relates to disputes between neighbours, maybe work colleagues, where there's not necessarily a domestic relationship. So AVOs as they relate to domestic violence matters are almost always initiated by the police. A private person can take out an AVO, whether they're the alleged victim, they might be a parent of the alleged victim or some sort of other interested party. And I say parent of the alleged victim if the alleged victim is a child. But in New South Wales, we see the vast majority of AVOs being taken out by the police. And members of the public can apply for them, but that's not common. It's not common. It's In order to apply for a domestic violence order, you need to be an interested party. So usually we see the interested parties being either the person who holds the fears and wants the domestic violence order for their protection, or it might be a parent of that child, for example, if the child's under the age of 16. What are the typical conditions within an AVO? Because obviously you see AVO and you think, okay, it means don't harm someone, but Mm -hmm. does it have a broader reach than that? There can be a lot of different conditions attached to AVOs. All AVOs have to have what is called the mandatory conditions. The mandatory conditions are, in short, that they prohibit the defendant, so the person who the order is made against, from assaulting the protected person, so the person who the order is made for. They prevent assaults, stalking, harassment, destroying or damaging of property, Um, harming or threatening to harm the pets or animals of the protected person as well. That's in sum, and I'm not quoting it word for word, but that's in sum um, the mandatory conditions. There are then additional conditions that can be added. So there are some prescribed additional conditions that we see more regularly. So things like a condition that the defendant not approach or contact the protected person or not go within 100 metres or a kilometre of the protected person's home or workplace or school, for example. But in theory, the court can also include an additional condition, whatever they see fit. Does a complainant in an AVO have to consent to that order being taken out? No, which creates problems, not all the time, but in a decent amount of matters. If an AVO is taken out by police and and that AVO, for example, has a a condition that someone can't go within 100 metres of someone, Mm -hmm. but the complaint in this situation doesn't Mm -hmm. want that to happen, Mm -hmm. are they then breaking a rule if they then go and have contact with that person? How does that work if if they don't want to have that separation? So the complainant or the protected person, they're not subject to the AVO. So they're not breaking the law if they have contact with the defendant unless a police officer wants to argue that they were an accessory to the defendant's crime of also having contact or that they were complicit in it. So what I often advise my clients, whether they're a defendant or whether they're the complainant or the protected person under the AVO, is the protected person or complainant, if there's a no contact order, for example, they could send 100 messages to the defendant saying, please pick up, please talk to me, write back. And the second the defendant writes back and says, no, there's an AVO in place, I can't, the defendant's technically breached the AVO. So at law, the offence would be made out. 
But then it's a question of how severe the offence is if proven on sentence because obviously if the contact between the defendant and the protected person was not willing or welcomed contact, then it's much more serious than where it is. When someone's had an AVO taken out against them, can they challenge that? Absolutely. So the very first court date, what the magistrate will want to know is, are you consenting to this AVO being made um, or are you challenging it or contesting it? So a defendant in an AVO, the person who the AVO is sought to be made against, they can contest the AVO and the court will make certain orders about evidence being filed and served and will then set the matter down for hearing. The magistrate hears the evidence in relation to the matter and will then make a determination about whether under the legislation an AVO should be made or not. If an AVO is taken out against someone and they don't want to challenge it, they want the case to sort of keep going and Mm -hmm. sort of get to some sort of conclusion, are they admitting to a criminal offence if that AVO is taken out? Because obviously the the AVO is there because there's an allegation that something Mm -hmm. serious has happened. Mm -hmm. If they say, I'm happy to abide by those rules, are they admitting wrongdoing? No is the short answer, provided they consent to the AVO being made on a without admissions basis. So what that means is they're effectively saying, look, I agree to the AVO being made, but I don't agree to the allegations which found the application for the AVO. If a matter, if a domestic violence matter goes to court, does a complainant always have to give evidence in a, in a domestic violence case? The short answer is no, they don't always have to give evidence in a domestic violence case. If the person who's charged pleads guilty, there will be no evidence called in the vast majority of matters from the alleged victim. In terms of do they always have to go to court, there are a number of court dates typically. Generally speaking, the police will ask the complainant or the protected person to come to court on that very first court date and then also if the defendant pleads not guilty for the hearing. There may be some other court dates in between that they might ask the protected person or the complainant to come to court if there's a contested bail variation or something like that. Now, practically speaking, for the complainant, the protected person, they will come to court. Most courts across New South Wales have facilities for what they call a domestic violence room or a safe room where the complainant or protected person will meet with police and there's special police officers called domestic violence liaison officers. They will usually remain in that room or that area of the court, which is separate from the public. And that will allow the domestic violence liaison officer to speak to them about the matter, get some instructions. So sometimes on the first court date, the complainant in the matter will say, look, you've taken out an AVO and it's just in the mandatory orders, but he sent me these 20 threatening texts since then. Can we add another condition so he has to stop contacting me? So sometimes that will happen on the first date or it could be vice versa. It could be that the complainant wants to have contact and that can be sorted out. The question then about giving evidence, that will only happen if the matter is defended unless there's an interim hearing about what the AVO conditions should be. But most of the time it will only happen if the matter is defended. And in that case, The complainant will be subpoenaed to attend court. It's a requirement to comply with that subpoena, provided it's validly served. And for anyone out there who's been issued with a subpoena or who might be issued with a subpoena but doesn't want to go to court, doesn't want the matter to go any further, they should definitely get legal advice about what to do in those situations. You've mentioned this domestic violence, the support room that Mm -hmm. exists. 
Are there any other additional safety measures that take place in a courtroom for domestic violence cases when complainants are giving evidence? Yes, absolutely. So there's the area that they stay in when they're at the court facilities, but then there's also special rooms where the complainants can give evidence from. So where they are required to give evidence, they've got the option of giving evidence not in the courtroom itself, so they won't be in the same room as the defendant, but rather from a safe room. So they give evidence electronically almost always from the same courthouse. There are some courthouses around New South Wales that don't have these facilities just yet, but sometimes they'll give evidence from a police station or something nearby. We, in an earlier episode of the show, talked about people who choose to represent themselves in court. Mm -hmm. Does that happen in domestic violence cases where someone accused of domestic violence decides to represent themselves? It does, and there are measures in place to add an extra level of protection for the complainant. So in those cases, a defendant is prevented from cross-examining the complainant or alleged victim themselves. What will typically happen in those cases is the court will appoint usually someone from legal aid or another lawyer who will literally come in and ask the questions that the defendant has asked them to ask. So typically in practice, the defendant will write out their 10 questions, 20 questions, 100 questions, and they will be read by the lawyer that's appointed rather than the defendant themselves. Talking about appointing lawyers, and I'm just thinking back to something that you said a couple of answers ago about if you're issued with a subpoena and you don't want to go to court, Mm -hmm. But thinking about if you are a complaint in a domestic violence matter, often this has been, this, the police are involved in, in getting it to this point. Do you have a lawyer in those cases or are you, are you on your own? You're on your own unless you get yourself a lawyer. So the police, they don't represent the complainant specifically. They represent the state of New South Wales or they represent the public at large. So they often do provide advice and support to complainants or refer complainants to other services. But if a complainant wants their own lawyer or if the complainant wants legal advice, they can't get legal advice from police officers. Uh, Most police officers aren't lawyers and even if they are, there'd be a conflict of interest. So complainants can go to legal aid and if they qualify for legal aid, they may either get advice or be appointed a lawyer or they can access other services. So community legal centres. There are some other great services around New South Wales giving support to alleged victims and victims of domestic violence, or also they can engage a private lawyer as well. What kinds of sentences are enforced if someone is found guilty of a domestic violence offence? I know that's probably not an easy question (laughs) because there's a a lot of different offences, but (laughs) what what are some, I suppose... It can be be everything from a Section 101A dismissal where the offence is proven but it's discharged right up to full-time imprisonment. So with domestic violence offences, we see a full range of offending. I was in court just last week. It wasn't my matter. But there was a matter where a 19-year-old son had called the police on his mother who had told him to stop making so much noise, get up and get a job. And she had shoved him and he had called the police and the magistrate said it was a matter that, in his opinion, the police should have exercised a discretion not necessarily to charge and that mother was dealt with very leniently without conviction. That's obviously a very particular situation. There was a degree of provocation before 
the shove came into play. And that is something that the court would characterise at the lower end. It's not an ongoing pattern of domestic violence. It's a very unique situation. But then right up the other end, we see people jailed every day for domestic violence offences, whether it be assaults on a partner, whether it be stalking or intimidation offences or a combination, right up, of course, to the situations that we read about and see all too frequently where people have killed their partners. Talking about your example just then from court made me think of something, which is that we often think of domestic violence as a purely romantic relationship or Mm -hmm. ex-romantic relationship. Is domestic violence classified as any type of family dispute or family abuse? Well, there's a particular definition about what becomes a domestic relationship, but it captures romantic relationships or past romantic relationships, but then it also captures brothers and sisters, a step-parent and stepchildren. Basically, anything where people live together or have some sort of family relationship, housemates are generally excluded unless there's some sort of other intimate or quasi-intimate component to that relationship as well. If someone you know is experiencing domestic violence and they are fearful of seeking help, what can you do? So there's a few things you can do. Um, You can seek help or seek out resources on their behalf and then assist them in engaging those resources. You can, of course, encourage them to go to the police and then you can support them in whatever way is possible. So sometimes that support might quite literally be an ear to listen and some helpful suggestions about what what they might want to do. Other times the support will be encouragement to leave the situation and then sometimes the support can be much more significant. So, for example, if their phone is being accessed and monitored and they need an escape plan, you might go and buy them a phone and get a SIM card and provide that to them so they've got that other source of communication that their partner doesn't know about. Or you might offer to have them at your house or a family member's house where their partner doesn't know where that is. I imagine when people are thinking about going to police if they are experiencing violence, I imagine that a frequent concern is a fear that they won't be believed. Mm -hmm. If people go to police, can they just go and report it? Are they going to be expected to turn up with some sort of evidence that something has happened or can they just go and and say this has happened to me and, and tell their story? They can absolutely go and say this has happened to me and tell their story. The police won't expect them to turn up with evidence and if the police think that they might have other evidence that might assist, it's the police's job to ask for it and it's the police's job to get it. So normally what would happen is a person would turn up and say, oh, look, I'm experiencing this, I took photos of the injury or I've got copies of the text messages and then the police would ask for it. Do police keep records of phone calls or reporting of instances of domestic violence? So, for example, if it's a neighbour or someone overhears something and they call the police and they make a report and the police go out and they investigate but nothing happens at that moment. Is that stored somewhere? So then if if another report is made, you know, in the weeks or months later, those things can be brought together to, to look at a pattern of behaviour? Yeah, and the, sh- the short answer is yes, records are made. It depends on how the report is made to police. If it's made through Crime Stoppers, it won't always make its way onto the police's central information database, which is called the COPS database. Um, but 
typically where a triple O call is made or there's a report to a police station or a police officer, police will create an event number and they will document the relevant information, including the relevant address that they were called out to. So even if no charges are laid on that day or their investigation doesn't come to anything on that particular day, if three months later they're investigating something else and the complainant then says, oh, look, three months ago there was this incident, the police came, but I was too scared to talk, but this is what actually happened, the police will have records of that call and what happened on that particular day. When police investigate domestic violence, what does that investigation look like and what kind of things are they looking for as they build a case? So it really depends on the nature of the allegation. A domestic violence-related murder is going to be very different and much more complex and involved to an allegation of a common assault in a domestic violence context. So the much more common example is the police will receive a triple O call. They will attend the premises. They will separate the parties involved and they will speak to each party separately. They usually identify pretty quickly who they consider to be the complainant or the person in need of protection, and then the defendant in the matter. So they will speak to the complainant or person in need of protection. They'll take an initial version from them. Sometimes this will be recorded on the police's body-worn video. Um, Sometimes they'll just make notes of it. Sometimes they'll just try and remember exactly what was said. And then they will typically offer the complainant the opportunity to do what's called a DVEC, so a domestic violence evidence in chief. And that would form part of their statement. So they take that statement or version from the complainant. They will speak to any other witnesses at the premises. Sometimes they'll speak to neighbours or people who live in neighbouring apartments or whatnot. They might ask for photographs from phones or text messages or whatnot. And then if they've got sufficient evidence, they will typically place the defendant under arrest, offer them the opportunity to participate in a, a recorded interview and get their side of the story Sometimes their investigations will go beyond that. Sometimes they'll seize phones or laptops and they'll do a forensic analysis of those items. Sometimes they'll need to get medical records. And then in some very extreme cases, sometimes they'll also apply for telephone intercept warrants or various other things. When someone is arrested on a domestic violence offence, are they often placed on bail and have bail conditions imposed on them? Generally speaking, yes, but again, it depends on the severity of the allegation. But most of the time there are bail conditions that are at least imposed by the police and then usually as well there's the domestic violence order as well. What would some typical bail conditions look like if someone was placed on that for a domestic violence charge? So to be of good behaviour, to appear at court at your first court date and thereafter, there's often conditions to comply with the AVO. Sometimes if there's clear issues with drugs and alcohol, there'll be conditions prohibiting the person from using drugs or alcohol as well. And then it really just depends on the particular situation. I imagine for a lot of people who might overhear what they think is domestic violence or might suspect something, there is probably an element of fear in reporting it in fearing a repercussion and a threat to their Mm -hmm. own safety. If it's emerging, they're the person who's revealed to be the source of that initial complaint. Mm-hmm. Is there any protection for someone who makes a phone call to police to report a neighbour or a friend or a friend of a family or relative or someone like that? So there's no automatic protection. Often when the police arrive, they might say, 
we've received a call from a concerned neighbour or we've received a call from someone else. They don't necessarily identify who they got the call from, but as they're building their case and investigating the matter, if they want to rely on the neighbour or the family friend as a potential witness and the source of the complaint, they'll need to get a statement from that person. So that person's identity can be revealed in the course of the investigation and in the course of any criminal matter. Now, the reporter can request to be anonymous, but if it is going to go to hearing, it's really not feasible for that to be maintained. If there are fears of reprisal, the police might consider taking out an apprehended personal violence order, um, so not a domestic violence order but the other type. But typically the police will only do that if there is a basis to believe that there are fears and that the fears are reasonable that the offender or the alleged offender might commit a personal violence offence against them. So it's a little bit unsatisfactory in the sense that you kind of have to wait until... till the neighbour comes around and says, I heard you called the cops on me. Yep. And I'm not happy. Yeah, don't do it again or I'll bash your head in or whatever the case is. Um, but there's no automatic protection, but there are mechanisms that the police can use and can employ to afford protection. Um, there's also, I should note, I don't want to deter anyone from making these reports. They absolutely can. Reports can be made anonymously through Crime Stoppers as well. And also you don't have to disclose who you are or your identity over a triple O call, but triple O callers can, of course, see the number you're calling from. Where are some places that people can go if they want more information about their their rights in a situation or if they've got a friend or a family member who they think is involved in a violent relationship? Is there somewhere that you would recommend that they go to, to to have a look? Yeah, so there's a few really good places that people can go for help. The most accessible ones are some phone lines. So there's the New South Wales Domestic Violence Line and also, of course, 1800 Respect, which are really accessible. You can literally pick up the phone and seek advice about whatever your situation is. If you've definitely got a court date or you're complaining in a matter and there's an AVO, you might want to go to legal aid or a community legal centre. And then also, if you're seeking help about how to manage a domestic violence relationship, um, if you're seeking help about how you might get treatment or seeking couples counselling, Relationships Australia is excellent. And then also there's always the option of going to your GP as well and seeking a referral for any particular mental health treatment or other services. Trudy, this is an incredibly complex area of of law and there's a number of different offences, but it's also incredibly important for people to know that there are places that they can go to for help, to support a friend or family or to make those incredibly valuable complaints against people when they suspect that something wrong has taken place. So Trudy Cameron, thank you so much for coming in to talk us through this very important area of law. Thanks very much for having me. And just another reminder that if anything in today's episode has raised concerns for you, 1800RESPECT is available 24-7 for any concerns related to domestic violence. We will also have a full list of available support services in the show notes. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens, And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.